2 Kings chapter 14. 2 Kings chapter 14. So we are moving closer to the end than the beginning of 2 Kings. We have seen a pattern that while Israel and Judah bounce between being faithful or unfaithful, God's character remains the same, right? He keeps His covenant to the very end. And so, despite Israel's idolatry, we saw God in our study last week. He not only brings Israel back from the brink of extinction, but He begins to bless them again. Well, in chapter 14 here, we're going to see both kingdoms experience victory, and because of God's faithfulness, both nations will experience prosperity. And yet, as we do this and we see, the author doesn't seem to have a very positive opinion of them. And the reason is, is because none of these kings that we're going to study tonight leave a legacy after them that matters. And may that not be the testimony of our lives after we study these guys tonight. May we get an idea of what it means to have a testimony that matters and commit to having our lives reflect that. So, chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. It says, in the second year of Joash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, reigned Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah. Now, again, remember, there's a little, it can be a little confusing there because you've got two kings, both by the name of Joash, ruling at the same time. In the second year of Joash, the first one, that's the king of Israel. The second one, Joash, king of Judah, is the one in the south. So, that's why I say it can get a little confusing. So, Joash uh, became king of Israel in the north just a few years before Joash, the king of Judah, died. If you do the math, though, that means that the king of Judah's son, Amaziah, ends up co-reigning with him for a few years. I think that's interesting considering that we saw two weeks ago that Joash was assassinated because he became not just a wicked king, but he became a king that brought ruin on, on the nation. So, apparently during the last few years, people were already seeing that something was a problem, and they said, you know what, you need help, so your son's going to co-reign with you. So, Amaziah now becomes king, verse 2, it says he was 20 and 5 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem. It points out where she was from because it's pointing out she's not a foreign wife. That's important when we consider that David's line would, had almost been extinguished by a Phoenician wife, Adaliah, Jezebel's daughter. Now, we read that and we go, good thing. But I do want to bring up that there is some weird theology out there that, that uses a verse like this to say that because of God's marriage restrictions for Israel, that marrying outside your skin color or outside your culture is sinful. The Bible does not teach that, Right? The Bible does not teach that a a biracial, interracial marriage is something that's bad. The Bible never teaches that. The Bible gives only one restriction to who a Christian can marry, and it has nothing to do with skin color. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 39, when it mentions a widow, if she dies, there's only one requirement if she wants to get… if not she dies. If her husband dies, there's only one requirement if she wants to marry again. It says, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will only in the Lord needs to be a believer. Other than that, there are no other restrictions. Second Corinthians, the second letter, chapter 6, verse 14, reiterates that principle. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So, the idea is clear that they have one restriction. It has nothing to do with culture or skin color. Israelis were allowed to marry non-Israelis if those non-Israelis were believers. 
Interesting, there is a time when an interracial or cross-cultural marriage is critiqued in the Bible, but it's shown to be a wicked critique. You remember when Moses, his sister, was critiquing him because he married an Ethiopian woman? That's the one time that an interracial marriage is critiqued in the Bible, and it's not coming from a good source. The Bible tells us, you read the story, that God gives Miriam leprosy because of her critique. So don't critique. (laughs) Verse 3, here's God's evaluation of Amaziah, the king of Judah. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Yay, we get a winner this time. Yet not like it, it's short-lived. Yet not like David his father, for he did, uh, he did according to all things as Joash's father did. Howbeit the high places were not taken away, as yet the people still sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places. It's interesting, when most Bible teachers come to Amaziah, he is frequently critiqued for not being a very good king. In fact, a lot of times I've heard guys teach this passage, and they'll be like, he did that which right in the, in the eyes of the Lord, but I don't see how. <laughs> we'll see why he gets critiqued in our chapter. But we must remember that this phrase, to do evil in the eyes of the Lord or do right in the eyes of the Lord, isn't necessarily an overall, overall moral evaluation of each king. It's not even really an evaluation of whether or not each king made their nation better. It's an evaluation of how each king handled the issue of idolatry. That's what it has to do with. And so when it concerns this, Amaziah, he was good about this. This is why every northern king is said to have done evil in the eyes of God, because they all tolerated and encouraged idolatry. So while we do and can criticize Amaziah for his other failures, God's evaluation says he didn't get involved in national idolatry. He didn't tolerate idol worship in the nation, and for that, that pleased the Lord. my, My son, one of my kids came to me the other day and he was talking about the story because he's, they're doing Second Kings over in, in uh, the, the kids' ministry right now for his age group. And he came to me because they had just done the story of, we covered it like a few weeks ago, of Elisha's servant Gehazi, who remember he got leprosy because he tried to rip off Naaman. And he said to me, he said, he said Dad, that seems kind of harsh. And I said, well, the Bible says in James, it says, let there not be many teachers, leaders among you, for you shall receive the greater judgment. He gave that guy naming the impression that God's servants have to be paid, that God needs your, needs your money and he's after a, a quick buck. And he lied about it. He, he gave people the impression that God's greedy. And the Lord, man, God takes being misrepresented very seriously. So this idea of when you're a king and you allow idolatry in the nation, you're causing people to stumble. And when you're a leader and you do that, God takes that really, really seriously. He says, if you stumble one of my little ones, it'd be better if you put a millstone around your neck and threw yourself into the sea. Tell you what, that sobers you up real quick when you're doing your Bible study to teach. Lord, I don't want to get this wrong. I was texting my wife something this week, and she's like, how's it going? I said, I'm hung up on this one verse. I said, she said, what is it? And I told her, and she goes, that doesn't seem, you know, super important. Why are you hung up on that? And I said, well, I don't know if I got it right. She's like, well, then you need to study it because you need to get it right. Well, he got this right. And yet, not like David. Now, it's funny because we look at David and we go, David, David's not really the best example in a lot of areas. True. David had flaws. He had failures. He had sins. But David never became involved in idolatry. Never. Not 
for a moment, which is why David is the measuring stick for all the kings that came after him. So instead of being like David, it says he was more like his own father, Joash. Joash, remember, faltered in the area of idolatry when he got older, and sadly, 2 Chronicles 25 tells us that later in Amaziah's reign, he incorporated Edomite idols into his private worship. Not publicly, but private. So even though he didn't tolerate idol worship in the nation, he did so personally, which is why the author gives this critique here. Now, quick application for us. David is not our standard. Our standard is the son of David, right? Jesus is our standard, and our goal is to be like Jesus in all we do. We don't want to settle for some mentor in our life or someone who's influenced us, right? We want to be like Christ. Now, the other critique, verse 4, the high places were not taken away. Remember, the high places are not pagan worship centers. These are worship sites to Jehovah, to the Lord, other than the temple. But we covered this when we went over Joash's reign, we don't get to choose how we worship God. God told his people, if you're going to worship me in this way, with incense and sacrifices, you need to come to the temple. And they said, that temple's a long way, man. I mean, church is hard to get to. And so they neglected that and worshiped God their own way. And God tells us how we worship. We don't decide how we worship. If we decide how we worship, then it's no longer worship, Right? The very nature of worship is I'm bowing down to you. That's what the word worship means. It means to kiss toward. The idea is you would, the idea of someone bowing the knee and kissing the ring or kissing the floor. Not, the, the, you're totally vulnerable when you do that. There's no demanding my way when I'm in that position. So the very nature of worship has nothing to do with, well, my way, my way of worship. No, it, God tells us how to worship him. And we must not deviate from that. Well, verse 5 And it came to pass, as soon as the kingdom was confirmed in his hand, that he slew his servants, which had slain the king his father. But the children of the murderers he did not slay, according unto that which is written in the book of the law of Moses, wherein the Lord commanded, saying, The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, nor the children to be put to death for the fathers, but every man shall be put to death for his own sin. Remember, his dad was killed by... a. A rebellion, a plot, a conspiracy against him. They assassinated him and put him on the throne. Well, it tells us that as soon as the kingdom was confirmed, the word there means become strong. When you come to power because two of your officials conspired to kill your dad, that means you don't have a lot of power. This faction, whoever these two guys were, would hold the power in Judah at first. But it tells us here, once Amaziah came into his own and he really was the ruler, he dealt with his father's murderers. But it's interesting, he doesn't appear to be motivated by revenge. Amaziah seems to be motivated by the wrongness of what they had done. You see, what they had done is they said, well, Joash is disobeying the Lord. Joash is bringing ruin upon our nation. We got to get rid of him. We got to kill him. And what do they do? They do a wrong thing to fix a wrong problem. And what did our mamas tell us when we were kids? Amen. Somebody did right up there. I would come home from school and I'd gotten in some tussle or something, you know, and my mom, you know, what happened? You know, I tell my dad, this and they did that. And she would, two wrongs don't make a right. Well, never does, is righteousness accomplished by fighting a wrong with a wrong. You're never going to destroy evil with evil. And so he deals with these guys. 
And the fact that he doesn't seem to be motivated by revenge is that he only executes them. He does not execute their family. You see, when a king came into power in that time period, it was customary to eliminate any and all rivals, including all of their descendants. Because if you didn't do it, the way that revenge killing works over there, you were basically planting the first seeds of a guaranteed rebellion if you, didn't, if you left any of their descendants alive. You know, it's kind of a, we you know, used to say it as a joke, you killed my brother, so now I have to kill you. But there are cultures that revenge killing is a very strong part of it. And in Middle Eastern culture today, still to this day, that is a very strong thing. So, that's how things were normally done. But God's people were to operate on different principles. They were to trust the Lord. Not good politics, not cultural norms, not even common sense. Sometimes I'll be doing some counseling and he says, well, you know, common sense says this. And I said, common sense is what got us in trouble in the garden. Now, I'm not saying it's bad to have no common sense. That's not my point. But when it comes to important decision-making processes, if God says this, common sense goes out the window. They were to act in obedience to God's commands, not what they thought was best. And here in verse 6, the writer quotes Deuteronomy 24, 16. That's interesting because it means Amaziah the king had access to Deuteronomy, the book, and he knew it. He knew it. He was well acquainted with God's words in it. We can critique Amaziah for his later failures, but we must not forget his commitment to God's word here and his obedience. He starts his reign the right way. If we want to start our marriage or our family or our business or our ministry the right way, we should follow his example here. I I frequently will be talking to people who want to get married or start a business or something along those lines, and, and we'll tell them, say, hey, you know, they'll say, hey, we, you know, we're, we're living together, but we're not, we don't have, we're not being intimate, stuff like that. And I'll say, you want to do this the right way. We're going to get involved in business. And I know this guy's an unbeliever. And I say, listen, I know the time might seem right, but the Bible says not to be unequally yoked. Wait, wait for a believer to come along to, to be your partner. Because if you don't do this the right way, you're going to have problems further on down the line. Well, this command from God, it says that the Children should not be put to death for the fathers. It says, but every man shall be put to death for his own sin. This command is very important when it comes to the issue of racism. For centuries, many Christians misused Scripture to say that people with black skin were morally inferior because of the curse of Ham. That whole passage in Genesis 9 when Noah gets drunk and he's naked and his son, you know, one of his kids comes in, he's like, well, dad's drunk, drunk, naked. And he goes and he tells his brothers, he goes, check this out. And the brothers come in and they're like, what? And they go and they, they don't even look at their dad. They back in, cover him up. And when Noah finds out about it, he, he's obviously upset with his son. People say, oh, all his descendants, they were cursed with black skin and they're inferior because of that. Even if that wasn't an incorrect view of the incident between Noah and Ham in Genesis 9, this commandment makes it very clear that every human being stands or falls on their own behavior, period. No human being inherits guilt or inferiority from those who came before them, period. That is a wicked doctrine, and we must never entertain it if we ever hear it. Now... 
I realize this is a sensitive topic, but this also has an application to the shift of popular thinking in our culture. There's the idea right now that a person with a certain skin type is either immune to being hateful because of the wrongs done to their forefathers, or that a person with a different skin type is automatically flawed because of the wrongs that their forefathers perpetrated. Concepts such as whiteness and white fragility, they are rooted in the same heresy as the curse of Ham. And they should be rejected just as much. Any person with any kind of skin tone can be racist or unloving. Any person with any kind of skin tone can love their neighbor. Skin tone does not make a person superior or inferior. It doesn't make them immune or extra flawed in regards to sin. And therefore, a person's skin tone is not a reason to make them pay for their ancestor's sin. No reason is to make someone pay for their ancestor's sin. A person's actions is how the Scripture says they're to be judged period. Any other thinking, I don't care how convincing or how popular or how much it makes the things around us make sense, any other thinking goes against the heart of God and His commands in Scripture. Verse 7, we get a really tiny summary of an event in this guy's life. It says he, in his reign, it says he slew of Edom in the valley of Sot 10,000 and he took Selah by war and he called the name of it, Selah, Jokthiel unto this day. This tiny little verse, if you read 2 Chronicles 25, it's a huge section. Sixty years prior to Amaziah's reign, the Edomites successfully rebelled against Judah. Amaziah gets his army together, but he doesn't think they can beat him. So he hires 100,000 soldiers from Israel's army to help. But as they're about to all march together to go out and fight against the Edomites, God sends a prophet to Amaziah to tell him, you'd need to not ally with Israel's soldiers in this endeavor because they're idolaters. I want to bless you, but I can't if they're there. He says, I'll be more than enough power for you to give you the victory. Amaziah heeds God's words. Another good thing. It's funny. He tells the Lord, he goes, Lord, I've already paid for him. He goes, how am I going to get the money back? He goes, I can give you more than that. You don't worry about that. Man, that's a great verse. That's a verse to put on your fridge. Because how many times we made a bad decision and go, yeah, I'm in for a penny, in for a pound. No, forget about the penny. Don't spend the pound. Too often we're like, well, I'm already already committed. Pull out. We'll lose this. God can give it back. The worst thing to do when you make one bad decision is follow it up with another bad decision. Sometimes the best thing to do is just to take your medicine. Trust the Lord that He's good and He's merciful. He does it. He trusts the Lord. And God gives Him the victory. It says he slew 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. The Valley of Salt is on the southeast rim of the Dead Sea. It's a border between Judah and Edom. It's the same location that David initially defeated the Edomites and forced them into a treaty that made them a vassal state of Judah. It says he got all the way to their capital city of Selah, took it, captured it by war. Selah is the popular city you may have heard of today. It's known as Petra. It's that fortress city in modern-day Jordan. It's cut into the rocks of the mountains. The only way you can get to the city is through this narrow ravine in the mountains, making it one of the most difficult locations uh, to capture in ancient history. That's where the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that the Jewish people will flee there when the Antichrist begins slaughtering them in mass. That Amaziah 
understood just how miraculous this total victory was is seen in the new name he gives to this fortress city in the mountains. He calls it Jokdil, which means God has subdued. He knew it. When he did this, he thought, man, I didn't think we'd have enough soldiers to do anything, and, and we take this, their capital city? God's the one who did it. God subdued. Amaziah should also be praised for this recognition. God, it's all you. It's a good question for us. Do we give God the glory for our victories and our successes? Well, sadly, Amaziah's wonderful mindset does not last. Second Chronicles 25 tells us that when Amaziah returned home from the war, it says he brought Edomite idols with him and he began to worship those idols privately. And he grew proud. Somehow he started to attribute the victory to Judah's strength instead of the Lord which leads him to verse 8, to challenging Israel. It says in verse 8, Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us look one another in the face. And I can promise you he wasn't taunting him for a staring contest. Let us see eye to eye. Let's see who the bigger man is. They might be thinking, why are you doing this, Amaziah? Well, there's more to the story. Second Chronicles 25 tells us that when Amaziah dismissed those hired Israeli soldiers, the Israeli soldiers got mad. And as they're on their way home, they plundered every Judean city on the way home. So when Amaziah comes back from Edom, he's not in a great spot with the Lord spiritually. He's angry because of what these guys did. And it tells us he talks to his counselors and his counselors say, you can't let this happen and not do something about it. And so they advised war. This was a very unwise proposition, though, and Jehoash lets him know it. Verse 9. Tells him a little story. You know, remember, this is, you text and you go, let's come and see each other in the face. And he's like, let me tell you a story, Amaziah. Text him like a little picture of, you know, a little thistle tree. Verse 9. Joash, the king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, the king of Judah, saying, the thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son to wife. And there passed by a wild beast that was in Lebanon, and he trampled the thistle. In other words, you got this little thistle. A thistle here refers to a wild thorn bush. If you go over to Israel, you'll see them all over the place, a little tiny thorn bush. This is, if you go up to it, it'll prick you. It'll even draw some blood if you, you walk through it. But if you really want to put it down, all you got to do is put out your foot. In contrast, a cedar tree is a big, tall, wide tree. You can take it out, but you better bring plenty of people, plenty of tools, and have lots of time. Big difference. In other words, the story goes like this. This little tiny bush says to this big, strong tree, hey, give me your daughter to wife. In other words, we're equals. We're equals. We, we should make this work. We're on the same level. And he says, and while this silly arguments going on. Just a wild animal comes by and tramples the bush like it's nothing. The parable is making a point. Amaziah, you and I are not equals. We are much stronger than you. Don't let your victory over a lesser nation like Edom cloud your thinking. Now, when the 10 tribes of Israel split off and formed their own nation under King Jeroboam the first. God commanded both of those nations not to fight one another in an attempt to reunite all the tribes. He says, this division is from me. Well, some of the kings of Judah really struggled with that. 
They saw the north as rebels. That's all they could see them as. Rebels that needed to be brought back into the fold. And when the northern kingdom was constantly involved in idolatry, that reinforced that thinking. Israel also didn't help the issue because they were stronger. They always had more resources. They always had more land. And they regularly threatened and even invaded Judah, which created constant tension. So, even though God commanded them never to fight, wars had been fought. But the north almost always came out on top because of their superior numbers. Well, if you remember, King Jehoshaphat put an end to that hostility. He did have a marriage with Ahab's kids. His kid, his son, married Ahab's daughter. And they signed a treaty together, putting an end to the hostility between the two nations. Ties between the two nations were strong for the first time in 150 years. But as we read Jehoshaphat and then his son and his son, that was a bad solution to a a real problem. The Judean king started realizing this bit by bit over time, and eventually the relationship chilled once again. By the time Amaziah is king, the treaty is in shambles. But the northern kingdom has enough problems to worry about that they don't want a war with Judah. So Joash just warns Amaziah, back off, or you're going to end up biting off more than you can chew. Now, from the king, it's not like he's a godly man, Jehoash. It's an arrogant, stinging rebuke, but it is the truth. Edom was far weaker than Israel at this point, and Amaziah would never, never have the Lord's help in a war against his own people. And so he tells him, don't let your pride blind you to the consequences of such foolish behavior. It would have been easy for Amaziah to go, who are you? You're not even a godly king. Sometimes we refuse to listen to an honest rebuke because the source isn't godly or the source exhibits prideful behavior. You know, you ever have that? Somebody comes up to you and you're like, who do you think you are? You're giving me marriage advice or parenting advice and look at your kid. But is that the right way to approach critique or advice? Never. Never. In fact, the Bible says that's what a fool does. In Proverbs chapter 17, verse 10, it says, a reproof enters more into a wise man than a hundred stripes into a fool. You can smack a guy a hundred times and you won't get him to see sense if he's a fool. But a reproof enters more into the wise man. Proverbs 18, 15 says this, the heart of the prudent gets knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. You say, I don't like where this is coming from. Okay, tough. Maybe that's the one God sent to tell you what you needed to hear. Maybe they were the only one available at the time. Maybe it was that serious that God allowed someone who's not the ideal person to get in your face about it because you need to hear it now. No one's endorsing King Jehoash in this book. In fact, the author makes it clear over and over again, this guy's wicked. But God wasn't asking Amaziah to like this guy's post or vote for him in the next election. God was using this wicked king's words to get Amaziah to wake up. You should listen to this. He's not a great guy, but he's talking sense. And unfortunately, Amaziah doesn't listen. Verse 11, but Amaziah not could not, but he would not hear. He saw the plundering of his cities as an offense that could not be ignored. And so, therefore, Jehoash, king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, looked one another in the face at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. Maybe this never happens to you, but 
I think back on my life and how often I got caught up in an injustice or a something wrong done to me, and I, I, blunder in, I blunder into my own injustice as a result. So that's wrong. We can't just let that happen. To which the Lord would say, okay, and is your solution better? Is your solution actually going to fix anything? You're not getting the whatever they plundered back, Amaziah. What is this actually fixing? James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, I feel like God constantly brings me back to this verse. But it tells us, James 1, 19, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Why? For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. My anger never produces God's standard. Never. Wherefore, he says, lay apart, I love the King James, all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. <laughs> Where else do you hear something like that? What does that even mean? It means an abundance of wickedness. Don't, what is it in First uh, Peter chapter 3, referring to husbands and wives, don't render evil for evil, cursing for cursing, but rather blessing for cursing, for thereunto I have called you to a blessing. You might look at your spouse or look at your parents or look at, look at your kids or look at that coworker and, and you know, be like, dude, they, they just they cursed me. They're just everything about them is an irritation in my life right now. And we're just like, I know, but I want to bless you. Well, what happens when we go and we take it into our own hands? The Lord's like, hey, I've got something planned for you. I'm, I'm going to work in your life through this. And you're like, nope, that's not good enough. I'm going to take care of it. And then not only do we not actually bring about God's righteousness, we miss out on the blessing. Lay aside that stuff and receive with meekness, James tells us, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. God has all sorts of very clear instruction for us about what do you do when your spouse does this, or when your kids do this, or, or, or when your parents do this, or when your friends do this, or when your coworkers do this. It tells us what to do. God has something for us to rescue us in that difficult situation. Do you receive God's words with a humble heart and a willingness to obey? Or do you get tunnel vision in your own warped sense of justice? Well, they go to fight at Beth Shemesh back here in 2 Kings 14. It's a town about 15 miles west of Jerusalem, and Judah is whooped. It says in verses 12 through 14, and Judah was put to the worst. It means they were routed before Israel, and they fled every man to their tents. And Jehoash, king of Israel, he took, he captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh. And then he came to Jerusalem, and he broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim unto the corner gate, 400 cubits. He destroyed that wall on the north uh, side of the city. The Ephraim gate was on the north side of the city. The corner gate uh, was on the northeast side of the city. So Jehoash destroyed 600 feet of the wall that David built in the part of the city that was most vulnerable to attack the north and northeast side. 
This would take a long time for Jerusalem to recover. They'd be vulnerable for a very long time. And then Jehoash makes that recovery even more difficult. Verse 14, and he took all the gold and all the silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house. And he also took hostages and then returned to Samaria. Jehoash, Jehoash, the king of the north, he plundered the palace, plundered the king's temple treasuries, took hostages either from the king's family or from important political figures there. All of this he did to keep King Amaziah in check for many years, allowing Jehoash to focus on those threats that were to his north. You read this thing and you're like, man, this is a horrible story. There's no good guys. Literally, there's just bad guys. So the writer, he sums up how each of the, their lives ended. Verse 15, 16, the king of the north, King Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Joash, which he did, end his might. And the word might there means his achievements. How he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Joash slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. And Jeroboam, his son, reigned in his stead. This would be Jeroboam the second. The people of Israel viewed Jehoash as a strong king, a, a man of great achievements. But I love the author. He goes, if you want to read about all that hubbub, go for it. Doesn't matter to me because it's not going to help the people he's writing to. Remember, who is he writing to? He's writing to people who are exiled in Judah. All this stuff's already happened. And he's writing to them their history. And he's saying, I could tell you all the great things he did, but none of them mattered. None of them lasted because none of them were pleasing to the Lord. So if you want to find out more about it, you can read these other books. But what I'm writing to you, it really is life didn't have a legacy that mattered. That's a good lesson for us because what does it look like to have a life, to live a life that matters? What does it mean to have a good legacy? Well, in the context here, the way that the author looks at it is that a life that matters is one that leaves a legacy that helps others move forward with the Lord. Because what he's saying here is, I could tell you all about all that, and you could read about all that, but it's not going to help you move forward with the Lord. That's what he's saying. Which means if we want to have a good legacy, to live a life that matters, we need to live a life that leaves behind something that helps others walk more closely with the Lord. Sadly, King Amaziah of Judah didn't leave this legacy behind either. Verse 17, and Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, he lived after the death of Joash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, for 15 years. And the rest of the acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? It's interesting. He doesn't even say this guy had any achievements. He says he just lived. He was alive but there was nothing noteworthy about the rest of his reign. Whatever good he had done, his pride had brought ruin to his nation. And because of that ruin, when his son turned 15, his own people rebelled against him. Verse 19, now they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem. And so he fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish and they killed him there. They slew him there. And they brought him on horses and he was buried at Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. just like his dad, taken out by his own people, a conspiracy. It's funny, he got away and he fled to a place that was a good place to go to. Lachish is a fortress city about 25 miles southwest of Judah. 
It was built on a 50-foot high, steep-sided, they call them tells over there. We don't really have, we don't really have hills here in Florida, but a tell is basically a hill with a big flat top on it. This one was about 20 acres, the hill, the tell, the flat part is, covers about 20 acres. It was one of the largest cities in Judah, protected by steep ravines on three sides. He went to the right place, but that didn't save Amaziah, did it? Either they send assassins to take him out there or messengers demanding the city turn him over. Whatever happened, the end was the same. He was killed and brought back to Jerusalem for burial. His pride destroyed him, destroyed his nation. They were plundered even more. Proverbs 18, chapter 12 says something significant. It says, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, arrogant. Before honor is humility. In other words, what comes first? If you see a person who's destroyed their life, what comes first? Pride, arrogance, do it myself, my way or the highway, right? That's always the case, always the case. When someone has wrecked their life, there's pride involved, my way of doing things. In contrast, if you see someone who's experienced honor in life, what's always preceding it? Humility. So, in addition to leaving behind a, a life that's going to help others get closer to the Lord, that's a good legacy, a life that matters. Well, how do we do that? Humility. Humility. If we want to live a life that matters, that impacts other people, the humble life is the one that leaves a good legacy. Verse 21, his son is crowned. It says, and the people of Judah took Azariah, which was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. He built, Azariah did, built Elath and restored it to Judah. After that, the king slept with his father. So after his dad died, he built this city. We'll get to that in a second, why that's important. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, Azariah, who's he? He's more well-known in the Bible as Uzziah. Remember that famous verse in Isaiah chapter 6, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. King Uzziah was one of the most popular kings that Judah ever had. When he took the throne, his dad had left things in a bad place. But during his reign, because he was a godly king, the kingdom flourished once again. And so it mentions just an aspect. We're going to get into him more in chapter 15. But, but here it just mentions one quick thing, that he rebuilt this city of Elath. Now, Elath, if you look in, if you have a Bible map, it's nowhere near Israel. It's all the way down. You got Israel here, you've got the Edomites here, Saudi Arabia here, and then all the way down there, you have this thing called the Gulf of Agwaba. It's a body of water. And on the, the edge of the land there is where you'll find Elath. Elath was a port city in the Gulf of Agwaba. Solomon, if you remember, used it to build a navy that brought a huge economic boom to Israel. Well, when the Edomites rebelled years, uh, I'm sorry, 60 years prior to his dad's reign, Judah lost control of that port. But now with Edom back under control, Uzziah rebuilds the port and the economy begins to boom again. Again, we'll learn more about this guy in chapter 15 next week, but the writer now in verse 23 shifts back to the north's next king, and his name is Jeroboam. He'll be Jeroboam II. So verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. That's a long time to, to rule. 
The writer doesn't say it, but I can't help thinking that this was God's mercy in giving Jehu's descendants ample time to repent. Because when they don't repent, this guy dies, God seems to judge his line swiftly because his son is only going to reign six months before a coup kills him. And then Jehu's line is obliterated. Just like Ahab, it doesn't exist anymore. And yet, even though this guy was a wicked king, verse 24 tells us he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord because he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Despite all that, we're going to read in a second about God's mercy and prospering of the nation. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His mercy endures forever. The Lord is slow to anger and full of mercy. That's Exodus 34, 6. Remember when Moses said, Lord, show me your glory? Or said, I can't show you my glory, you'll be crispy crittered. But I will hide you in the cleft of the rock, and as I pass by, I'll declare my name. That's the closest you can get to knowing me the way you want to on this side of heaven, Moses. So God passes by, and those are the first words he says, the Lord, the Lord God, gracious, full of mercy, patient. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord is slow to anger and full of mercy. It's the most repeated verse in the entire Bible. Over and over again, the Lord is slow to anger and full of mercy. It's almost like the Scriptures want us to know without a doubt that God is merciful and slow to anger. Jeroboam didn't repent. He continued in the sins of the man that he was named after. When you name a kid after the founder of your nation, you set the bar pretty high, right? It'd be like naming your kid George Washington, right? Well, this guy's going to be the best king in their mind we've had in 300 years. And from a non-spiritual perspective, it looks that way. Verse 25, and he, Jeroboam, restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath under the Sea of the Plain. Real simple verse, but you lose the weight of it if you don't find out where those places are. He took back all the territory of Israel that the Syrians had conquered, all the way up to the entering of Hamath. The entering of Hamath is a city 125 miles north of Damascus. That's way up by modern day north Iraq, southern Turkey, northern Lebanon. In just 40 years, the northern kingdom went from facing extinction at the hands of Hazael, king of Syria, to conquering Syria and controlling as much land as David and Solomon ruled during their reigns. All because Jeroboam's grandfather cried out to God for mercy. This makes Jeroboam by far, by far from a political, historical analysis, the most successful king in the North's history. And what's interesting is this turnaround was predicted by a prophet most of us will recognize. Verse 25, he did this, he restored, he took it back according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spoke by the hand of his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath-hefer. Anybody remember that guy, Jonah? Jonah was a prophet, ooh, ooh, but he really never got it. That's how we normally know him. Some of you roll in your eyes, yeah. Say, don't ever do that again, Pastor Will. 
Jeroboam is so successful, but Israel gets so far away from God in his mercy toward them. Four books of the Old Testament are written during his reign. Joel, Micah, Amos, and Jonah. Now, the other three prophets are consistently talking about all the spiritual decadence in Israel, the sin in Israel, you know, the laziness, the spiritual laziness. But it's interesting, you would never know Jonah was writing during that time when you read his book. You would think everything was great in Israel. Jonah's book doesn't mention any of those things. In fact, Jonah doesn't mention Jer- King Jeroboam at all. Jonah's about his call from God to go preach God's mercy to Nineveh. And when I read this verse, and then I read the book of Jonah, I like Jonah even less. Because while his fellow prophets are all working their tails off, calling out sin, getting ridiculed by the people, their lives being threatened, what does this guy get the privilege of doing? He says, I've got a word from the Lord. Like, oh, great, here it comes again. We're in sin. He's like, no, no, no. We're going to have military victory everywhere we go. The kingdom's going to expand and get as big as it was in the days of David and Solomon. And yeah, I bet all the people of Israel are going, I want more of that. I want more of those prophecies. Boy, I must never forget that God gave that to them all during a period when the people weren't following the Lord. And yet Jonah has the audacity to be up on that hill waiting for God to destroy Nineveh, and then he gets mad because God shows them mercy. Yeah. If he's in heaven, we're going to have a conversation. Jonah says, God, why would you forgive them? They're wicked. To which I would say, Jonah, look in the mirror. Look at your nation. God God didn't just spare you. He blessed you. Not because you were good. The author explains two reasons that God did this for Israel in the next two verses, and I will hurry up and finish up. It says in verse 26, why did God do it? Because the Lord saw the affliction, the misery, the suffering, the persecution of Israel, that it was very bitter, it was hostile. It says that, for there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. In other words, yeah, Syria whooped them, but they didn't imprison or capture or take as hostages the warriors of Israel. They killed them all. There was no warriors left. All of Israel's great warriors have been killed by the Syrians. And so the Lord saw all of that mistreatment, and it moved his heart of compassion for his people. I think we get the heart of God wrong a lot. God's compassion is not something that we feel because people deserve it. Compassion is something we feel because people are in need. Like you can look at your wife, your kids, your husband, you know, your, your coworkers, whatever, and be like, ah, I'm just jerks. Or you can look in front of you, you can see that someone has a need. There have been so many times I'm trying to win an argument with my wife when the reality is there's a need right in front of me and I just need to have compassion and reach out. Who cares if I lose the argument? My wrath does not bring about God's righteousness. That's the heart of God, compassion. So he was compassionate on them. The second reason the author gives is in verse 27, and... The Lord said not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. 
The context that the Lord said means this is also something else the Lord said through Jonah. Jonah said, yes, you've been in sin. Yes, God's not pleased where you are, but he's not going to wipe you out even though you deserve it. And so when Jeroboam became king, God used him to be the hero Israel needed to rid them of the Syrian threat to their existence. Now again, remember the audience. Think about this for just a minute. If you're an exile in Babylon reading this and you're thinking to yourself, there's no hope, God's abandoned us, He could never use us again, there's no way out. And then you hear this. And you think, if God brought our northern brothers back from the brink of extinction and blessed them like this, even when they didn't deserve it, doesn't that mean God still wants to be merciful to us and restore us too? Doesn't it mean God's not through with us either? He doesn't want to blot us out? When we read the book of Daniel, I don't have time to go into it. I read it in our scripture reading, but his prayer in chapter 9, it's so matter of fact. Lord, you promise this, you keep your promises, we don't deserve it, but I'm asking. And I can't help but wonder his prayer, which is so heartfelt and pleading, yet full of faith. I can't help but wonder that he read First and Second Kings, and he's thinking to himself, this is my God, which is why it's in our Bible. Because God wants us to know that we can always count on His character. We can always count on Him to keep His promises. He does not fail and He does not change whether we are successful or we do change. He will keep His promises and He is oh so merciful to us. Amen? Verse 28 and 29, not much else about this guy. Now, the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might, how he warred and how he recovered Damascus and Hamath, which belonged to Judah for Israel, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, even with the kings of Israel, and Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. The author says, man, he did a lot, and I could tell you about all those battles, but again, I don't think it's going to help you get closer to the Lord. It's not a good legacy. And that's where these three other prophets and their books come into play. I would encourage you, read those three books this week, and what you'll see, though, is a sad message. Prosperity won't last if you don't repent. Judgment will come swiftly. And yet the people, despite their prosperity, they just refuse to repent. Forty-one years of awesomeness under this guy, all undone in just 30 years, because 30 years after verse 29... Israel won't even exist as a nation. It's how fast being at the top of the mountain can change to nothing when we just won't trust the Lord. So what does it mean to leave a good legacy? What does it mean to live a life that matters? A life of humility. A life that leaves people better off spiritually when you're gone. What will your legacy be? Let's all stand. Lord, I know it's all of our hope that you just come back soon and We don't have to worry about any legacy. But the truth is, Lord, we don't know that day or that hour, and we may cross, cross the doors that lead to eternity before you return. So, Lord, we do want our lives to matter. Whether they're long or short, we want them to matter. So, Lord, tonight we commit to you to a life of humility. We commit to the path you have for us so that we can leave a legacy of helping others to be closer to you as a result. And Lord, if that means being the best mom, best dad we can be, then that's the greatest call any person could have. That means that we can be the best encouragement to our spouse that you've called us to be. 
that they're closer to you as a result of our influence in their life, then, Lord, that's a great call. Lord, you know exactly where each of us are and the things that you've, you've called us to and the places you've put us. So, Lord, we want to be faithful with that. So we humble ourselves. We need you, Lord. We want to do things your way, not our own way. Let us have that legacy of impacting those in our circle of influence that they're closer to you as a result of their interaction with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.